Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm in the coffee shop of the Courtauld Institute with a very old friend. We were just reminiscing and realising, well, I was realising we've known one another for, I think it's actually 26 years. I'm here with Tony Bennett. 26 years and still counting, Toby. More or less. Yeah. Although we are not what you, what you once described to me as mathematical sociologists. No, I'm not. I'm not. Although I do a bit of uh, statistical work here and there. Yeah. So you're doing something at King's College London, is that right? That's where yeah. I met you outside of it. Yeah, I'm here in London at the moment because I've got a visiting position with King's College where uh, I'm working with Nick Rose. And with Nick Rose and a colleague of his called Des Fitzgerald. On a project they're working on that's looking at um, how possibly to reinvigorate relationships between the social sciences and the life sciences and the biological sciences and the neurosciences in particular. And I'm interested in this from the point of view of work that I've been doing on the subject of habit, which I've been looking at in terms of historical debates about habit, uh, which has a long history going back to the Greeks. Mm-hmm. It has a particular kind of like take-up in late medieval Christian thought, and it becomes a kind of a, a major founding problem area for, in quotes, modern philosophy, through various constructions of habit as a negative mechanical force that is the opposite of the human, that is what binds man in a philosophical sense to the animal kingdom. Right. That's one kind of like construction of that. So it's a Galian denunciation because you're not making a semiotic intervention. Less Hegel. Hegel had a few good things to say about Hegel. Yeah. More, oh. more Kant uh-huh. had a lot of negative things to say about Kant. Oh. For Kant, it was habit binds man too much to the brute, he said, or words to that effect. Uh-huh. But then there's another tradition initiated by Bergson and reactivated through the work, particularly of Deleuze, uh-huh. in which habit becomes a kind of a necessary, uh, it is the routines and things that become sedimented knowledge, routine habitual knowledge through the mechanisms of habituation that free people for other kinds of activity. In the present, there are lots of people who are doing interesting work informed by things like assemblage theory, the new materialities, trying to establish kind of connections between how one might change habits, what contribution the neurosciences have, might have to make toward this, how changing habits might be, uh, how habits might be shaped by the milieu, and how in order to sh- change habits you might have to reshape milieus, and how changing habits might be essential to environmental futures and so on. So there are lots of interesting intersections that the topic of habit opens up between the natural sciences, the human sciences, and so on. And that's what I'm doing here. And Nick Rose's brother is one of the major guys in neuroscience. Um, well, more in the biological sciences, I'd have said, for Nick Rose's brother, rather than the, than the neurosciences, if you're talking about Stephen Rose. I'd have said there were connections there, but mainly, I mean, he worked more on the brains of chickens. Right, but he did that he did. book, The 21st yeah. Century Mind, or The 21st Century Brain, or something. All right, but he, yes, he may well have done. He's got books on memory, clearly questions of the brain. And so, I mean, the next, the next work has always been influenced by that family heritage, or one of the people in the family who are very knowledgeable in the biological sciences. Mm. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, yes, it's interesting, isn't it? In other words, habit is something that is seen as mere repetition, 
without thought, without choice, versus something that provides the space and the opportunity for then other things to happen that are more spontaneous, yes? Well, that's one construction of the matter. And actually, to explain, I'm not trying to develop a theory of habit. That's not my concern. Well, my concern is, is with, um, I'm calling my project, and like it's, it's working code for me, is Mind the Gap. And, yeah, habit and um, habit in the conduct of conduct, because nearly all the accounts of habit that I'm familiar with, from Bergson through Deleuze, through to um, Catherine Malibu, through to Bourdieu, they always have, as a part of their account, there have to be a mechanism where kind of like the there has to be a point, a space a time at which the habitual mechanisms of repetition that characterise habit are kind of like halted and there's a space opened up for something else to happen my argument is is that space is where different kind of epistemological authorities intervene in order to develop theories how once habit has been the routine mechanisms of habit have been checked been temporarily halted. Mm. Behaviour yes. can be redi- redirected yeah. in new ways. Yeah. And this new ways might take the form of just a completely idealistic account, or it might take the form of developing along new new neuron paths, new synapses, synapses might develop. And the forms of authority that intervene in this kind of gap, if you like, can be medical, they can be biological, they can be aesthetic, they can be oppositional, they can be conservative. My interest is in how these different forms of authority compete with one another and intervene so how in their capacities to shape behaviour in this blip between... How would you relate that to the article to Bachelard's idea of an epistemological rupture? Uh, I, I wouldn't. I haven't thought of it. I mean, it's a good idea. It just occurs to me. No, the other thing that occurs well, it's, to me it's is... Well, like, um, it's more like... It's not an epistemological rupture. It's, it's, it's a kind of... It's, it's, a, it's an opening up Within, within the human, it's usually it's limited to the human, it's an opening up of, of within patterns of behavior that are held to be formed by chains of determination, however yeah. those chains of determination are construed, psychological, social. It's an opening up there of a space for another kind of capacity of freedom to assert yeah. itself. I don't particularly believe this. No, you're just sorting it out. Yeah. No, I'm thinking of... And that space of freedom is very yeah. conceived. That, you know those breach moments in ethnomethodology where they say, we know what the everyday making do, yeah, yeah. habit is, when suddenly it gets broken. Yeah. And, that, and then you see whether or not that means that there's going to be a substantive change. Yeah. Will Coleman has a nice example of this, of when a man is, when a man's female partner in a heterosexual arrangement is going to the restroom and asks him to hold her hand up. And he's in public space, he doesn't know how to do it. He knows how she does it. He doesn't want to do it like that. And Coleman says this is a moment when masculinity is completely present for one of its only occasions. No, the the ethno-methodology comparison is a good one. Um, And clearly these these were moments, these were experimental situations, moments of rupture within the kind of, often the fabric of urban life, if you like, which would open up new possibilities and, and often did. And the literature on the literature on everyday life, the sociology of everyday life literature, that was very popular in the 1960s uh, through people like Lefebvre and so on, which in his new book, Modes of Existence, Latour refers to kind of like as a, as a moment that he was shaped by, that, 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 that he's, he now knows better. 
Um, but what was interesting about it is those, those debates about everyday life, but particularly about everyday life, was characterized by routine repetition, etc., yeah. etc. Et and then there were sudden moments of spectacular rupture, yeah. in which new possibilities of revolutionary transformation might occur. That struck me then as now as improbable. Uh, but it's that kind of, that's an example. No, it's Precisely an example of what I'm talking about. I know that it's about to happen because on the number four bus yes. that I took today to meet you, there was a loud announcement that said, as of the 6th of July, you may no longer buy a bus ticket with money. All right. Uh, well, that, yes. That's a revolution in every time. What would be more of a revolution if they said it would be free? <laughs> Well, there are rumours it's no longer going to be free for those over 60, probably yeah. over 65. Yeah. So, uh, you mentioned Latour, and Bruno Latour has been somebody whose work you've engaged with quite a lot in recent times. What's been your trajectory with Latour, would you say? What turned you on to him? What interested you, animated you about his work? Originally, the route into Latour for me was via... Um, his engagements with, or the ground of the engagement between Latour and Bourdieu. This is when I was working in a project in the UK with a number of colleagues from the University of Manchester and the Open University on a culture class distinction project, a survey of practices of cultural consumption in the Bourdieu tradition. And um, I got interested in reading, so this is, there are two ways in which I'm interested in I got interested in the tour because of his critique of the structuralism that underlies Bourdieu's position, all right, uh, which struck me as valid. I got interested in the tour because um, Bourdieu's response to the tour, and his, I forget which book it is, but there's a book in which he engages with science studies, and it's one of Bourdieu's worst books. You can see he has not, he has not done the honest thing that sought to understand the position that he disagrees with adequately. So what he, what he does is he knocks down the straw map of the tour. Bourdieu did that from time to time. It's, as, it's about as bad as his book on television. Um, uh, although you know, Bourdieu has many great books, don't misunderstand. So I got interested in it from that point of view, and also because um, the tour's insistence, you know, the tour's bringing of things of non-human agents, non-human, that's the way to use his actors, into the picture, is an important aspect, I think, of thinking about cultural fields. Uh, so there are no material actors in Bourdieu's conceptions of cultural fields. They're just a series of positions between human actors. And there's been interesting work done on um, you know, people incorporating kind of like the role of technologies and practices of cultural consumption. Okay. So that was one route. The other route, was through some of the Australian interests that you and I would share, would be Bruno Latour's account of, um, you know, why we've never been modern. Yeah. Has, you know, very terrible things to say for someone like myself who is engaged in questions of museum representation, but also particularly the practices of 19th century anthropological collection, uh, the collection of Aboriginal remains, cultures, so on and so forth, and the organisation of the evolutionary conceptions of humanity. So the tour's work has got a lot of cut into those sorts of issues. Um, we were just chatting earlier about the tour's most recent modes of existence, which I think is, um, it, it over-eggs the tour pudding, kind of like uh, considerably. Really. It's, um, 
It's sorry, Bruno, but it's a sloppy, poorly written, self-indulgent book with a lot of important things to say that are, that are unfortunately kind of like buried in a lot of um, um, yeah, a, a lot of egg yet. So the reader has to work uh, unduly hard in order to get out of the book lots of, lots of value. Maybe one of these occasions when people have started to leave their own rhetoric. One of the things that strikes me about the tour is that amongst the Maitre Français, historically, but also amongst lots of contemporary academics in related fields, he's the only one who's really made heavy-duty, regularly updated, really reviewer use of new technology to get his messages across. And in this book, I don't know about the English edition, but in the French edition, it was set up so that you could engage yeah. on the website very directly. And his work is always made available on the website early, you know, either in or outside copyright. I don't know how it works, but he's remarkable in that way. Perhaps he's beginning to believe some of his own rhetoric about or the rhetoric surrounding him. Yeah. Well, uh, no, I don't know. I wouldn't want to turn this into a kind of like, uh, you know, who knows? I just think it was a book that needed a little bit more discipline in the writing. It needed, it needed, it would have been much better had there been a good editor on it that would have pulled it back. Yeah. So that the essence of what was being said could have come over more clearly with less asides, without um, without phantom female devices like his anthropologist, his woman anthropologist of modernity, and so. On. Um, so it's which is what I want to say about the book. I just think it's a little bit too self-indulgent. Um, but I think, in terms of other aspects of Bruno Latour's intellectual practice, I mean, just has great things to say, and you're perfectly right. His website is, you know, it's an interesting, uh, engage, an interesting way for an engaged intellectual to use a website. I think it's better than I do. <laughs> now, in terms of some of his musings about critical theory, which were, I think, in his book before that, and articles, he's been very negative. One of my confusions is that it's not entirely clear to me what he's been negative about. What is the bad object? Did you ever engage this? Because you've also had your struggles with ideas of critical theory. I don't think, I think the term that the tour uses is critique rather than critical theory. Right. So that it's a particular, um, it's a particular conception of self-authorizing critique. Um, and I think that he's, uh, that he was critical of. Um, as a form of intellectual practice that was, um, you know, perhaps more sure than it ought to have been about its ethical foundations and didn't give too much care to inspecting what those ethical foundations might have been rooted in or connected to. I'm more... I've been more persuaded by the, uh, the Boltanski and Thevenot critique of critique uh, because it's a more... It's a more sociological account, if you like, of what was the function of that particular kind of intellectual practice uh, and its currency in the in the 1960s and 1970s. So I'd like to, I, I think that the target is more, I think the target of critique they engage with is more limited than the target of critical theory. Yeah. All right, so... Yeah. Yeah. Now, in terms of your own work, you mentioned this... Undertaking with the folks at King sounds very interesting. Sounds to me as though it may be fairly early on. No, it is very. It's gestation. Are there things that are ongoing that you're involved in at 
present, whether at the point of fruition or that recently bore fruit. In this uh, in this area of work? Well, in any. Oh, well, the area of work on habit, let me just give it a longer history. I'm currently working on this with people at King's, but I will, it's also something that I began to be interested in when I was working at the Open University as a part of the, uh, one of the directors of the ESRC Centre for Research on Sociocultural Change, otherwise known as CRESC. This is the uh, Economic and Social Research Council. Yeah. And it's a project that I was working on there with my colleague Francis Dodsworth, and that I also then developed an interest in knowing to the Institute for Culture and Society at the University of Western Sydney, where I was. And I worked on that project with Greg um, Nolder and Megan Watkins, and myself, Francis, Greg, and Megan Watkins, and Mary Poovey from NYU, uh, recently co edited an issue of Body and Society on the question of habit and social governance. So that the remit of that project was more about, that was more straightforwardly about, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't about an interface between habit and the neurosciences, all right? This was more about history, historical formulations of habit mm -hmm. and uh, the ways in which those have been connected to various kinds of like projects of governance. So, you know, that's one of the outcomes. I recommend it to anyone listening. <laughs> this is Body and Society, which is a sage journal. That's right. I think, and it's part of the family, as it were, of theory, culture, and society. Yes, is that right. fair to say? Yes, it is. No, very closely connected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's that's those things. But I've been working on other projects. Um, one of which was a project uh, funded by the Australian Research Council, again developed with lots of colleagues. One of whom I'm meeting uh, later today, Rodney Harrison from University College London, Ira Jackness. Curator of Anthropology at the um, uh, University of Bertha Museum there, I forget the name of the museum. Nelia Diaz, a Portuguese anthropologist whose expertise is French anthropology. New Zealand colleague Cameron McCarthy and Australian colleagues Fiona Cameron and Ben Diblett. Sorry for all the names. No, I think it's, know. That's fine. this is like at the end yeah. of the rock concert. Yeah, when exactly. The singer has to say, I'd like to thank members of yeah, the yeah. band who will introduce themselves. No, no, well, this is very much a, this is very much a joint project. And it's a project looking at the relationship between museum practices, anthropological fieldwork, um, and particularly the, the ways in which the forms of collecting the anthropological fieldwork developed at the turn of the 19th and the 20th century, but connected to various mechanisms of governing both colonized populations and metropolitan populations. So we've been looking at Boas and his followers in the sense of his successors in the American Museum of Natural History, people like Bart Whistler. This is Francis Boas, who was one of the key figures in US anthropology, founder of the Four yeah. Fields and professor at Columbia University. So we've been looking at him in the American context, we've been looking at Baldwin Spencer, founding evolutionary anthropologist in Australia. In Australia. And similar things looking at mass observation in Britain, the Musée de l'Homme in Paris and so on. And so this is all coming together yeah, wow. as a comparison. Yeah, no, it's been quite an undertaking. That must be yeah. massive. And it's been really good fun. I'll bet. I mean, very interesting. Interesting because it's, um, it really is an interdisciplinary routine. It's got anthropologists, archaeologists, museologists, sociologists, you know, what have you. Uh, and people have brought different perspectives to that. And the overarching theme is uh, uh, collecting order and government. Collecting 
the relationship between collecting materials from the field, the distinctive forms of ordering, cataloguing, exhibition ordering that were subject to within the museum, and the ways in which the forms of intellectual ordering to which um, collecting materials are subject then inform conceptions of populations and how they should be governed and how different populations should be governed in different ways. Are you seeing very distinctive national differences, say, between the French and the British? And the yeah. There are, there are connections between all of them, uh, in that to varying degrees, what's happening here is that um, I have, for better or worse, coined the term working surfaces on the social to kind of try to identify what I think it is that cultural disciplines do that cultural disciplines are implicated in the management of the social, the you know, governance of the social through the ways in which they connect with conduct. But they never do this directly, they do it through the kind of mediatory of what Foucault called transactional realities they construct, and I can just working surfaces on the social, the kind of conceptual filters, if you like, that they organise between themselves and conduct. And this is the point at which, differently in different contexts, but notions of culture and culture as difference that are beginning to be registered as different from racist difference are beginning to emerge. So it's a point at which, particularly in the American politics, at which culture is beginning to kind of like displace race as a, a surface from the management of the relations between populations. Same thing is happening in France. Different ways, different concept of culture, different genealogy coming from the Durkheim, Durkheim mouse tradition. Whereas in the in the American context, the concept of culture is really shaped by Germanic roots through Boas, Boas derives it from Kant, it gets reshaped by him, then it gets reshaped by um, it gets reshaped by Alfred Kerr, it gets reshaped by Ruth Benedict. It's informed by it, the usual story about anthropological concepts of culture as they've informed cultural studies is that it's the opposite of the aesthetic conception of culture. Nothing could be further from the truth. Absolutely not. Yeah. It's profoundly shaped by aesthetic conceptions of... And sometimes by the CIA and its predecessors. Oh yeah, no, there's These are also too. quite important. Yeah, there's that too. So, they're different in different connections. Yeah, they're different right. contexts. Right. But um, the trend... But, no, the trend... Is similar. The trend is similar, and it's mm. not only that, it's, the, it's these re-elaborate... It's the role of the museum disciplines in... Uh, uh, particularly the anthropology which is a museum discipline becoming a university discipline at this period, their role in the elaboration of the culture concept in this period becomes crucial to kind of like post-war forms of government around the UN, UNESCO, and so on and so forth. Yeah. This is where it gets picked up from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So as an example, some of the founding papers on culture for the post-war period were written by, an anthropologist knows this, were written by Levi Strauss and Michel Lieders, who's part of the, you know, both of them were connected to the Musée de Rome. So there's a, a really strong role that museum knowledge is in this period of play in kind of like laying the foundations for conceptions of culture and difference that are still living. In Australia, would I be right in thinking that nowadays there would be more anthropologists in museums and maybe in private practice and government than there would be in universities? I don't know. Um, there are certainly still... Um, Quite a lot in museums. Um, it's still, um, yeah, quite a central discipline for museums in, in Australia. I mean, most of anthropologists have, as it were, weaned themselves from the um, earlier, more problematic aspects of 
the anthropological legacy, so it's a, it's a, it's a progressive force. Um, you probably know this better than I do, but for quite a long period, anthropology and sociology, in some formulations, tended to be twin. Yeah. So you'd have an anthropology kind of like sociology next to disciplines. And then sometimes around museums, you'd have an anthropology archaeology mm. disciplinary nexus. So anthropology, kind of, it's a little bit of a different. How it's shaped as a practice would depend a little bit upon the institutional context in which it's located and what all the disciplines it's working with. Now, one of the ones that I've done quite a bit of work on in the podcast is Mexican anthropology because, you know, it's really central to nation-building and it's part of the national imaginary in a popular way. I mean, any taxi driver in Mexico City knows about the Anthropology Museum, knows all the principal anthropological myths of pre-Columbian and post-Columbian Mexico. It's been so effective there, and it's wildly popular. The other thing that interests me in terms of wildly popular is, at least in the United States, if you want to make money, you start an archaeology magazine. People buy archaeology magazines. They're really fascinated by dudes digging. And what well, they find, right dudes digging, yeah, yeah. and what they find. Yeah. You know, it's astonishing actually, it's rich. Both as a sort of technological scientific element of, into the past, and as a sense of you know, who we are now. It has a popular quality as well as these other more theoretical questions that it addresses. Well, the history, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I only know a little bit about this, but the history of different disciplines like archaeology and their degree of take up and popularity in separate societies is an interesting topic in itself. I mean, there were, in the late, in the mid-19th century, there were profound debates uh, uh, conducted by archaeologists about the, you know, the problematic aspects of whether excavation might possibly lead to the discovery of peoples with more sophisticated cultures than were held to be represented by the Native Americans of the present. Politically loaded territory, yeah. you know. And still is, actually. It, it, it still is politically loaded territory in the States. Uh, I was visiting Santa Fe two or three years ago, and some archaeologists were telling me it's really problematic to lay claims to the fact that people's, people X might have had cities in the past because of what it does to kind of like narratives of conquest, uplift, and improvement. And archaeology as a practice in Australia really didn't happen until something like the 1920s. One of the reasons it didn't happen was because it was held that excuse me, it was held that Australian Aboriginal culture had been static for millennia. So there was no point digging down because what you'd find underneath would just be the same as what was on the surface. So why bother? And this, you know, this is amazing. They really were Hegelian. Yes. No, I, <laughs> wow, that is, that is fascinating. Now, I wanted, we're about halfway through our time, Tony. Um, and I wanted to give you, despite my claim that this was all softball, a slightly mad and no doubt scattered narrative of your intellectual trajectory for you to subscribe to or not as you will. How would that be if I threw this out? Well, I'll give it a go. We'll see what happens. Old friends. Yeah. We're here in the court hall. It's very disciplined and civilized. You caught us both a lovely, you know, sticky barn. But it's neither sticky nor a bun. Starting out with sociology of literature, writing either Marxism and literature or literature and Marxism, 
formalism and Marxism. Sorry, formalism and Marxism. I'm always, you know, it's always those are all Mechelen books. Always confuse me. A great book, wonderful stuff. Then getting involved in popular culture work and being participant and a key one in lots of readers and new material produced through the Open University to look at the role of popular culture, relationship to politics, a lot of influence of Gramsci. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then moving to Australia and somewhere around that time in the mid-80s, a theoretical shift from Gramsci to Foucault, and then there's this book, uh, Bond and Beyond is the almost the last gasp of Gramscianism, and then outside literature, which is about 1990, I think, is turning away from literary studies and announcing what was already known through various articles, a change of object, as well as a shift in terms of ideas of popular resistance from below, towards museums and their importance. And then the birth of the museum, I think, is the 95 book. And of course, in amongst all of this is a shift away from the idea of culture as a site of particularly working class, but also gendered and racialized resistance to dominant orders. And thinking instead of cultural analysts in universities as being technicians, rather like people in museums who can provide services for good or ill, but basically in an implicitly liberal way, small l liberal in the US sense. And then the tool. And now the brain. Oh, now the brain. Now the brain. I'm getting there. Finally, no. That's roughly right. And you've got the, you know, the, the chronology right um, in terms of, you know, what, what I started out with. immersed in Marxist aesthetic literary debates. Um, moving from, I mean, I was interested in these originally from a kind of like a Lukacian Altusarian perspective, different, of course. Um, the moment of Gramsci was a profoundly influential one within British cultural studies. Um, for me, it was very productive. It offered all sorts of interesting ways of engaging with the topic of popular culture and the kinds of struggles that took place within, through, and across popular culture. Um, it is the case, however, or it was the case, however, I think, that at, at that time in Britain, the kind of the cultural studies engagement with Foucault was a bit odd. Um, uh, and within cultural studies, it wasn't particularly productive, in my view. Um, and the, the kind of Foucault that emerged within Australia through the work of various peoples was just more interesting to me, and I engaged with it. I wouldn't say that I engaged with it as a kind of substituting the role of technicians, intellectuals as technicians, for questions of people being engaged in cultural struggle, whether it's informed by, whether it's across axes of class, gender, or ethnicity. Um, because that clearly happens all of the time. Um, and um, I've got, you know, great respect uh, for those struggles and for what's at issue in waging a contest, uh, a kind of um, a struggle to escape dominantly shared forms of identity and to, to craft new forms of persona for oneself or for groups. Uh, but it's not that all that's to be said about the relationships between culture and society. That's... And when I began working on the museum, the birth of the museum, which was, I suppose, when I began to engage with the question of power knowledge from a Foucauldian perspective. And, you know, having read Foucault's work on the clinic, having read his work on the various 
on the asylum, on the medical disciplines, and so on. I suppose that the, the kind of topic that I set myself in and that still interests me is to say, well, okay, we can look at psychological knowledges from the point of view of power knowledge, what about cultural knowledges. And that gets a little closer to home for this. And looking closer to home is always a little bit, you know, a little bit edgy and a little bit more difficult. So, the museum was a good kind of like point of entry into these questions about, well, uh, what forms of truth are produced by cultural disciplines? What forms of shaping of conduct are they implicated in? So that, you know, if there is a, if there is, the, the contests that are shaped by social groups in struggles, etc., take place within uh, a cultural social world that cannot be reduced to an account of the relationship between dominant and subordinate cultures. It's just not the case. And you can't reduce what the, the work that goes on within cultural institutions. Uh, you can't adequately account for them if this least simply become kind of like ciphers of the cultural dominant class without taking, without taking account of what specific knowledge practices are in place, through what institutional mechanisms are they put into circulation, in what ways do they connect with conduct and you know, engage with it to shape it. And if this is true for our analysis of, um, if this is, you know, in my case, if it's true for the analysis, I'll say the forms of authority that were associated by with 19th century anthropological museums, then just the same is true about the role that is played in contemporary museums in terms of their knowledge of community, for example, and the production of community as a surface of management the various forms of expertise engaged. So part of my intellectual project is to say is well, you know, it's not to it's not to think that um, oppositional, critical, reformist um, forms of knowledge are operating in accordance with a different logic. Um, if you wish to intervene in kind of like politics, then we mustn't think that we're doing so in some kind of like well, you can if you're kind of like crackers. If we're doing so in some way that's different from the ways in which other knowledge agents engage in these things. Many people do hold to that belief, but I don't think it's got anything going for it at all. So this is about a, an ongoing critique of vanguardist intellectuals operating under the sign of a supposed delegation from the oppressed and seeking out resistive signage in uptakes of popular culture. Um, not just in uptakes of popular culture, but, but yes, that would be a part of it. That would be, um, uh, it would be to say, well, you could subject, um, perhaps I should, you could subject those forms of intervention into mm -hmm. social and cultural life. You could subject, you could deal with those as particular forms of knowledge power. Mm -hmm. I'll give you this a little bit more explicit. One of the disciplines, I engage with, I engage with this in my the book I've written most recently that's engaging with these questions is called Making Culture Changing Society. I must admit I haven't read that no, no, one. No, no, well, so, And it's precisely, oh. it's about, you know, it's about the ways in which different intellectual authorities and different circuits of in different institutional contexts make culture, yeah. make it up, produce it as a, a kind of like an object yeah. of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the ways in which these forms of culture are then kind of like mobilized as ways of acting on the social, the changing society, making culture. Society. One practice, one form of one cultural discipline that has historically tended to be, as it were, let off the hook of a kind of knowledge power relationship is the aesthetic. 
unless you look at it from a Bourdieu perspective, but I don't want to do that. I do in other contexts, but I don't for the purposes of this conversation. Um, there's a chapter in that book that I've called Guided Freedom, which is a, uh, it's a debate with Rancière. Um, and my argument is, is that aesthetics too uh, is bid to guide conduct through its production of a particular form of freedom, its production of a particular conception of culture associated with freedom. But this has to be seen as a, a kind of like a bid to guide conduct that seeks to occlude itself from the picture. It always, it's kind of, it's not me, it's the aesthetic. Um, and so um, that's my work, that's, that's the ways in which I've tried to deal critically with positions which seem to me to be kind of like um, occluding their own forms of active intervention into attempts to guide conduct in particular ways because resistance is a guided form of conduct. It's not what watch means. That would also apply not in resistance terms to most science, wouldn't it? This would be one of the critiques of the tool with me, actually. You know, the data told made me do it. Uh, that's the truth, I'm just presenting the facts. You can substitute the word aesthetic for the facts. Um, I'm not sure, I'd have to think about that. That's a kind of, that's a big topic about aesthetics and science. Um, and I'd have thought that most scientists are pretty kind of like clear that they are engaged in practices that are about changing something that they are about. Uh, reasonably conscious that strongly interventions practices. But I'm not, you know, it's, it's a big, it's a big question. It is a big question. It's an interesting one. I'm just thinking of natural science, for example, which is very observational, yeah. as opposed to experimental or theoretical, where the imprints and the physical intervention are very clear. But, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. Wow. A, my point is slightly yeah. different one. My point uh -huh. is about the aesthetic as a historically sculpted space yeah. of action. Yeah in its kind of, not just post-Kantian, but really it becomes an operative category in Western thought, you know, around about the 17th century. And how it, how it is looked at through kind of like a Foucauldian optic of liberal government, how it's always been in place as an, a part of an apparatus for shaping conduct through the mechanisms of liberal government, defined by Foucault as mechanisms that shape and produce freedom. I think the aesthetic is a weakness of Foucault's position. He's a positive statistician. I try not to be. He is a fan of the avant-garde and the modernist. Yeah. I've often wondered, you know those two big coffee table books that Umberto Eco put together, the Book of Beauty and the Book of Ugliness, or whatever they're called, which one sold more? Yeah. I'm convinced people bought the ugly one in greater numbers. Because it's just, it's very much what the French called Bajoli led, you know, it's the beautiful ugly. Yes, that is interesting. I mean, when you look back at some of those early Foucauldian participations in things like Critique, that magazine, and Telkel, and so on. Yeah. Round tables, but also works. They're quite standard forms of yeah, endorsement of the modernist sensibility, aren't they? I think, I think that's exactly so. And I think that they are, um, in terms of the formulations that, that, that Foucault came to later on, he never really returned to the, this earlier work in a systematic way. They're kind of, they're statements that are at odds with the methods that he deployed epistemological territories. It's, it's a really interesting question about the role of art in all of this, because one of the things that happened to me when I moved to the US was to realize that there, 
a lot of the more interesting people in cultural studies were very animated by avant-garde avant art practice, which of course was also, in quite material ways, linked to popular cultural production, not just in the standard sense, actually, but in a personnel sense, in ways that I was quite unaccustomed to. And so these things become very interesting, I think, in terms of you know, their, their physical genealogy. Yes. And, yeah, and I'd want to hold some degree of tension between this kind of historically sculpted sphere of the aesthetic, mm. as I've been talking about it as a kind of position that's elaborated in philosophical aesthetics, mm. um, and the sphere of art practices. They clearly connect in many kinds of ways um, and inform one another. Um, but I'd like to maintain the tension between them because I don't think that the kind of social impact of particular art practices is necessarily something that's can be accounted for, should be accounted for, in terms of an approach to this historically sculpted yeah. place of the aesthetic. Yeah. I want to ask you one more question before we can devote the rest of our time off air to gossiping about our families. Very good. Much more interesting matters. <laughs> I wondered about where next, not, not for you so much, because you've already explained to us what this big undertaking is that you're including, and this other big undertaking that you're starting, and their interconnectedness as well as their separateness. But where next for some for cultural studies? You do ask some small questions, don't <laughs> you, Toby, as a way of um, concluding a discussion. Um, it's not an issue that I've thought about for some time, um, but I, the way in which I've prefer to think about the question being answered would be to say, well, it's going to depend quite a lot upon what's going to happen in tertiary education in, uh, in, in our case, the cultures that we worked in, mostly in kind of like Anglo universities, but obviously more than that. And uh, I think one, you know, we have to recognize that we're living in a period in which the critical humanities is under concerted attack. Um, it's not accidental. I mean, in Australia, it's, it's, it's perfectly clear that the, the, the current political regime is not really interested in the contributions that critical humanities and social science scholarship has to offer. Um, I think that a, uh, a very strong kind of like state-centered, pragmatist direction toward research and pedagogy and higher education would be a characteristic of next 20 to 30 years. Uh, I don't think that means kind of like in any dramatic sense the end of cultural studies, but I think that it will alter the kind of the terrain on which it, on which it is engaged. Um, I've never been sympathetic to the conception of cultural studies as itself a political project. Um, I've been very sympathetic to cultural studies as a critical intellectual project that is based not exclusively within academic institutions, but partly so, that should connect with a range of political constituencies. Um, I think that the idea of cultural studies as a political project, I don't think it has that many supporters at the moment. I think it's probably more the case that people would accept that they're working within the academy and connecting with a range of different range of political constituencies which don't add up to a single political project. They don't add up to a single counter-hegemonic struggle. You, you simply can't use those Gramscian terms to speak about the contemporary politics in which cultural studies is implicated. 
and I rather suspect that that kind of um, uh, that it's in the increasing differentiation of its views of engagement will be a characteristic of the next 20 years or so. Hmm. Thank you, that's a, a terrific answer to a very difficult question, fielded well. Bennett T. Tick. All right, very good. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thanks very much to you, Tony. And when the multidisciplinary, multinational project on archaeology and museums bears fruit, I hope you'll return to the pod and share with us some of your findings, maybe with some of your colleagues. That would be a good thing to do. Okay. Lovely. Thanks.